Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, and we'll be looking at page 550 in the white paperback Bibles or blue paperback Bibles. We'll help you to have the uh, word open before you as we're going to look at some in some detail at this text. Uh, last week, you might recall that we were in the book of Acts, chapter 1, and we learned a little bit about the Holy Spirit, that God sent the Holy Spirit to empower His witnesses to be bold declarers of the word to people that they would encounter. Um, one of the main purposes of the Holy Spirit is that we would be empowered to speak the gospel to others, and that's what it is to be a witness. So we heard about that last week, and so here we are on the Sunday before Christmas, and um, I started to think about what, what role does the Holy Spirit play in Christmas? We might not think about that very often, actually. You know, we have a lot of the common elements of Christmas. We hear about Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds and the star of Bethlehem and the stable and baby Jesus, all very important and relevant uh, images for Christmas. But what does the Holy Spirit have to do with Christmas? Does the Spirit have a role to play? Well, you might remember in Luke chapter 1, when the angel comes to Mary and tells Mary that she's going to give birth to a child, Mary says, how is this going to be because I'm a virgin? And the answer that the angel gives is the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, Mary, and make this possible, that you will give birth to a child even though you are a virgin. So apparently the Holy Spirit has a lot to do with Christmas. The, the Spirit does a great and mighty thing in Christmas, the first Christmas 2,000 years ago. And what I want to show you today is that the Holy Spirit can do a powerful thing in your life this Christmas as well, and that the Spirit is someone we should reflect upon and think carefully about this Christmas season. So we are just going to plow through Route 66. I'm not going to take a detour from it. We've been in this sermon series for more than a year. We're going through the Bible, one sermon per Bible book, and we have reached the book of Romans, and that's what we're going to consider today, Romans, a few verses out of Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans is written by a man named Paul. We're going to get to know Paul pretty well here in the coming weeks as we continue through his letters. Paul, formerly called Saul, you might recall, he was a persecutor of the church, um, a Pharisee, converted on the road to Damascus and used by God to write a good portion of the New Testament. The book of Romans written about 57 A.D., uh, events, not really any events because it's a doctrinal epistle, but what Paul is dealing with is the question of how uh, Jews and Gentiles together can be saved. Paul is concerned with this question particularly about what's going to happen to the Jews since the Jews have rejected Jesus. Uh, the Gentiles have been brought into the kingdom, but what about the Jews? So that's kind of what he's thinking about, the, the bird's eye view throughout the book of Romans. And through Romans then come all of these various theological uh, subjects, topics, sin, God's wrath, faith, justification, imputed righteousness, sanctification, election, God's love, 
Romans is an enormously, amazingly rich, theologically profound book. In fact, some people say that Romans is the greatest letter ever written in the history of humankind. And others say that chapter 8 of Romans is the greatest chapter in the greatest letter ever written. So what we're about to look at here is something very special. Paul is a theologian, and so you'll have to get ready for this as we go through Paul's letters. We're going to be getting into some pretty deep and rich doctrine, and that is certainly the case in this passage uh, today in Romans chapter 8. So if you're able to stand, please do so. I'm just going to read the first four verses, and what Paul is beginning to unpack here in chapter 8 is life in the Spirit what believers can expect by the power of the Spirit. And I think you'll get the Christmas connection here as we go through this text. So here's Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we do call on you now to come and open our eyes and soften our hearts to behold wonderful things in this passage of Scripture given to us by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So, we're just going to take a look at these four verses, and I'm going to show you three things here, very simple. Three very simple things. What you can't do, what God can do, And then as a result of that, what you can do, okay? What you can't do, what God can do, and then what you can do. So the the first thing is what you can't do. Um, That might sound like an odd thing to say, except that we hear in our culture a cliche that's commonly uttered is this, that if you put your mind to it, you can do anything. And that's what the culture tells us. Dream big. Whatever you dream, if you really try hard, you can do it. You can do anything is what you'll often hear. Um, But actually, that's not true. There are some things that you can't do. And Paul tells us one of these things that you can't do. And and what he says here is, you'll you'll see it here at the end of verse um, 3. He says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, he says. He's speaking of something that we cannot do by the law. What he's saying here is is this. When he says the law here, he's referring to what we might try to do in obedience to the law. And so what Paul is saying here is that by your own religious observances, by by your own personal integrity, through your own moral passion, through your commitment to social activism to make the world a better place through your cultivation of your own personal virtue, through your observance to whatever moral code that you might have in in your mind. Everybody has a moral code. Treat others as you would have them treat you or 
um, love, not hate. Everybody has some kind of a moral code, which I would say is a kind of law. Your devotion to your moral code or your moral law, whatever that is. Paul here is talking about the law given to us by God, but we all have a moral code. Your devotion to that, your obedience to that, your excelling at that cannot save you. That's one thing that you cannot do, friends. You cannot redeem yourself. You cannot get to heaven. You cannot atone for your sins. You cannot earn God's favor. You cannot obligate God to forgive you or to redeem you. As hard as you try and as good as you are, and you might be a very good person and a very righteous person in the eyes of others, but you cannot redeem yourself by obedience to the law. That, that's what Paul is saying here. What the law could not do. Now, why is this? Why, why is the law unable to do this? If you back up a little bit in verse 2, what Paul, the word that he uses to describe the law is that it's a law of sin and of death. That's why. If you're seeking to save yourself by your obedience, you're seeking to save yourself through obedience to a law that is one of sin and of death. Here's what he means by that. The law is a law of sin. It means that the law reveals sin to you. That's what Paul says in Romans 7, 7. He says, I wouldn't have known what sin was if the law didn't point it out to me. I learned in the law how far short I fall of God's glory and righteousness. And so the law simply sheds a spotlight on your sin. That's why Paul says it's a law of sin. But he also says it's a law of death. It's a law of death. Chapter 5, verse 12 says that through one man sin entered the world and through sin came death. Sin is disobedience to God's law. The wages of sin is death, Romans also says, and now death has entered through sin and death has now spread to every individual who has ever lived. This is what obedience to the law gets you when you're seeking to use the law to justify yourself before God. It exposes to you how sinful you are and leads to your spiritual death. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's what Paul is telling us here. There's something you can't do. You're, you're spiritually, morally unable. Now, does this mean that God's law is bad? Does it mean that in itself God's law is uh, wicked or evil? And, and no, that's not the case because in chapter 7, Paul says he delights in the law. He says, I believe the law is good. So the problem, if we go back to verse 3, is not with the law. Because look what he says, what God has done, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The problem is the weakness of our flesh. The problem is our moral inability. The problem is that there is not enough resources within ourselves to put forth the adequate effort to obey God in such a way that he would forgive our sins, redeem us, and accept us into heaven. Law is powerless to do that. It would be like if you had an apple tree out in your front yard and there was no apples growing on your tree and you were concerned about that. Well, what do you do to change that? Do you go down to this courthouse in Indianapolis, Indiana and have them pass a law that all apple trees must bear fruit? 
You know, do we look for a state ordinance? Do we get the legislators involved? Pass legislation to make sure all trees bear fruit. You know, of course not. That's absurd. <laughs> the law is powerless to give life. That's what Paul is saying here. The law cannot give life to a tree, and the law, in your obedience to it, cannot give life to you. But the law is useful, though. So we don't want to go too far and think that there's something wrong with the law. Again, what Paul is saying here is the problem is the weakness of our flesh. There still is value to the law. Martin Luther King uh, years ago once said <clears throat> that the law can't make a man love me, but it can keep a man from lynching me. Now that's well said. Uh, the law can keep people from doing awful things. That's, that's true. But what Martin Luther King is getting at there is the very weakness of the law. The law can't make a man love me, he says. And the law can't make you love God. And that's the very first command. When you think about how you're doing morally, how you're doing before God, the very first command is love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first start there. Before you think about any of the other Ten Commandments, start there. You are called to love God. And all of us fall woefully short of that. And just simply knowing that the God commands us to do it does not give us life. Galatians 3, verse 10 sums this up very well. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. So, if you're a person today thinking, um, you know, when I just add up the, the totality of my deeds in my life, I think I'm on the nice list, not on the naughty list. You know, if that's your hope, that I'm going to get to the end of my life and my good deeds are going to outweigh my, my bad deeds, uh, that my performance in obeying the law is going to be sufficient, uh, you're going to be disappointed. Paul says there's something you can't do by your obedience to the law and it's save yourself. It can't happen. But here's the good news, friends, and it is this, that <clears throat> there is something that God can do. What can God do? do. And go back to verse 3 again. Notice how Paul starts, starts this. For God has done what the law could not do. What you and I couldn't do by the law, God did. God did something. He stepped in and succeeded where we failed. He did something that we couldn't do. He did something we were powerless to do. What is that? Go on in verse 3 again. Second half of verse 3. Here's what he did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's what he did. He sent his son in the flesh. That's a reference to what we call the incarnation. That's what the word incarnation means. Carn means flesh, in means in, in the flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The Christmas is about the incarnation. That's what this verse is talking about. God sent his son in the flesh and for sin. This is a very important phrase here in verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Let's just examine this in some detail. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He does not say, the way this verse is worded, it does not say in the likeness of flesh, by sending his son in the likeness of flesh. That's not what it says, but it's an important distinction. 
not in the likeness of flesh. What Paul is not saying is that, that the Son came uh, and appeared to be in the flesh. He, he's not saying that the Son came and kind of seemed like he was human. That, that's not what he's saying. And you might think, what, what are you talking about here? Well, you know, we argue about a lot of things today. I mean, everybody argues about Donald Trump all the time, you know, even in the church today. Uh, in the early church, you know what they argued about? They argued about things like this, like, is Jesus Christ God? Is Jesus Christ a man? Or is Jesus Christ a mixture of the two so that he becomes a third thing that is neither divine or human? Or is Jesus somehow fully divine and fully human at the same time? These are the things the early church argued about and debated. And what we see in the scriptures and what church history has come down to believe, what the church throughout history has come down to believe, is that Jesus did come and took on a human flesh to himself, inherited from his mother, Mary. And that this second person of the Trinity, who was the eternal divine God, came and assumed humanity so that he became a person who had a human nature and a divine nature at the same time, God and man in one person. The scriptures elsewhere are very clear about this. John 1, the Word, referring to Jesus, became flesh. The Word, eternal Word, took on a body. John, uh, 1 John 4, 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So this is what Paul is, is saying here. He, he's not saying that Jesus merely looked like a human or seemed like a human or was almost a human. No, Jesus was fully human, 100% man and 100% divine. But there's something else we notice in this phrase that, that Paul is not saying. He, he doesn't say in sinful flesh, right? God has done what the law we can by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He doesn't say in sinful flesh. In other words, Paul is not telling us that, that Jesus took on humanity to the extent that he also became a sinful person. He's not saying that either. Jesus took on the weakness of our humanity when he walked on this earth. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He got he got tired, just like you and I do. He took on all of the weaknesses of our humanity, but at the same time, he was without sin. In his thought, words, and deeds, never once did anything displeasing to the Father. Now, how could that possibly be? How could that happen? And the answer is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus was able to do that. So let me just show you this verse from Luke 1. I referenced it earlier. This is the angel speaking to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, without sin. He's going to take human flesh to himself, but not to the extent that he himself would become a sinner. And what made that possible was the Holy Spirit empowering Jesus' ministry as the man-God on this earth. But it goes on. There's more. Here's what this leads to. <clears throat> Still in verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, what did he do? He condemned sin 
in the flesh. He condemned sin. God condemned sin. Your sin and my sin were condemned when Jesus Christ went to the cross in his flesh. In the human body he inherited from Mary, he lived on this earth and then voluntarily and willingly went to a cross and laid it down, shed his blood, so that the Father could condemn your sin in him. So that all of your wrongdoing and the punishment that you deserve for all of your wrongdoing and all the ways that you fall short of obeying the law, that penalty could be taken by Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, made him to be sin who knew no sin. The sinless Savior made sin so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. So what does this mean for you? I, mean, here's, you know, I told you Paul was very theological. <laughs> but here's what this means. If you want to get it right down to the rubber meets the road, what it means for you and me is this glorious statement at the start of chapter 8, verse 1. Look at it. Look at this. This might be the best verse in the whole Bible. This might be the best news you'll ever hear in your life. There's nothing greater than this statement that I'm about to read to you. Nothing, nothing better. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. How can this be? Because your sin was condemned in the, sinful, in, in the flesh of Jesus, in the body of Jesus. So now for you, there's no condemnation. We might say, well, for whom? Who exactly are we talking about here? It's, this, this isn't applying to everybody. It's there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is those who, whose faith is in Jesus, those who are trusting in him. For those, there is no condemnation because their sin has been condemned in Jesus. And so if that's you, you have this assurance. There's no condemnation for you. And when is this true? Look again carefully at the passage. There is therefore now. You see that word? That is a sweet word in that verse. Now, today, right now, there's no condemnation for you. You don't have to wait until you die to find out if you did well enough in this life. You don't have to wait to see if your future performance measures up so that you can earn God's favor and mercy and forgiveness. It's not something that you're waiting for to be determined in the future. It's something that has been determined right now in the present for those who have placed faith in Jesus. On December 22nd, 2019, you can have the assurance that there's no condemnation for you. There are really two kinds of people <coughs> living on this earth. There, there are people who are under the condemnation of God and they don't know it. There's a lot of people like that living on this earth. They think they're doing fine. They think they're obeying their moral code. They think they're obeying the law well enough. They consider themselves to be pretty good people, and they can't imagine how God would be displeased with them. They're nonetheless outside of Christ and therefore under his condemnation, and they don't know it. They're like the walking dead. And then there are others... And I'm afraid many of them are in the church, and that is that there are those who are not under condemnation, and they also don't know it. Or they at least don't believe it. Or they at least don't rejoice in it. 
They don't wake up every morning with a heart bursting forth in thanksgiving to God because on this day, once again, there's no condemnation for me. I mean, that would be a good thing to tell yourself every single morning that you wake up, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. You, you might feel like you're under condemnation from others. You might feel like your spouse is condemning you. You might have lived a life where you had parents who are always condemning you. You might feel like your boss at work is condemning you. You might feel like your professor or teachers at school, they, they've condemned you. You're not good enough. You can't live up. You can't do enough. You're always feeling condemned. But friend, the person whose approval you need the most, which is God the creator, does not condemn you if you are in Christ Jesus. That's what God can do. You can't do that, but God can and has done that in sending his son, condemning sin in his flesh, and in pronouncing to you that there's no condemnation for those who trust in him. So, where do we go from here? <clears throat> this is what often happens. Is, you know, what, what you've just heard is just a very basic gospel presentation. Many of you, of you have heard this over and over again. But very often we kind of stop at this point. You know, we talk about being sinners. We talk about God's wrath and, and anger. We talk about forgiveness of sins. And we tell people, once you receive Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And then very often we just kind of stop right there and we just leave it. And we don't go any further. But, you know, there's more to it than that. And Paul tells us this in verse 4. Look what he says. In order that, verse 4. So that phrase means that what has come before is the reason for what follows. So everything we've just talked about, what God has done in sending his son and condemning sin in the flesh, God did all that for a reason. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. This gospel truth, this incarnation, this act of God to send his son into the world to live and die for us was done so that the righteous requirements of the law would be met in you and me. In the way we walk on this earth. Do you notice how the, the verse continues? Who walk, not according to the flesh. That is, who just live their lives in a particular way. The righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled in you. Now, we believe in something called the active obedience of Christ, which is that Jesus fulfilled the requirements of law on our behalf in his righteous life on this earth. Uh, there's a guy named Jay Gresham Machen, one of my kind of theological heroes, a Presbyterian from the earlier 20th century, um, on his deathbed, his very last words were, thank God for the act of obedience of Christ, no hope without it. I mean, that's the truth that he was hanging on to as he was about to enter into eternity. That's a truth that can make you die well, can equip you to die well, to know that Jesus has obeyed not just died for you, but obeyed for you. The active obedience of Christ. It's a truth. It's part of the gospel, but I don't think it's what Paul is saying here. Because of that little phrase in verse 4, righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, in, in you, in the way you live. 
That is, you can now obey God. You can please him. We, we hear a lot about being sinners, but let's not forget what the Holy Spirit does for those who trust in Christ. The Spirit can empower you to live a life that really matters. The Holy Spirit can empower you to change. Change is possible in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, if you back up to verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. So the, the law was reigning. It was, had this tyrannical control over you, always hanging over you like a black cloud because it produced death and you could never do enough to please it. But now that there is no condemnation for you, you are freed up by the power of the Holy Spirit to obey God, not perfectly, but substantially in this life. Do you remember when Jesus said, I think it's in Matthew chapter 5, he's talking to his disciples and he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees? Remember when he said that? I mean, that's a little bit of an alarming verse if you don't read it right because the Pharisees were very diligent religious people. They tried to do everything right. Now Jesus is saying, you've got to be better than them. But you know what? If you're a Christian, you are doing better than them. You are. Your righteousness does exceed that of the Pharisees. Why? Because you do more good things? No, but because now you're obeying God from a right heart. Now you're obeying God because you love him. Not just because you have to. Not just because it's some kind of an obligation. God has given you a new heart. A heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh. And now you obey God freely and in a way that genuinely pleases him. A guy named Richard Gappin says this, apart from the gospel and outside of Christ, the law is my enemy and condemns me. Why? Because God is my enemy and condemns me outside of Christ. But with the gospel and in Christ, the law is no longer my enemy, but my friend. Now we look at the law, not as something that condemns us, but it's something that God has given to us by his grace to guide us and lead us into righteousness. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit who enabled Mary to give birth to the Christ child, because that spirit lives in you as well, that means today, friends, you can love your enemies. The person who's driving you crazy, you can love that person. You can be patient with your children. It is not impossible. You can be gentle with your wife, with your husband. You can deny yourself. You can put your interests aside for the interests of others. Sometimes it seems impossible. For the Christian, it's not impossible. You can flee sexual temptation. There is a way out that the Spirit has provided for you. You can control your temper. You can be content in whatever circumstance it stands in itself. You can develop a prayer life. You can develop a life of reading the scriptures. You've told yourself it's impossible for you. You can't do that. If you're a Christian, yes, you can. Now, you can't do it perfectly. You're going to fail. And when that happens, you're going to have to get up again and say, what does the scripture say? There's no condemnation for me. Yeah, I did lose my temper again. Yes, I was impatient with my spouse again. That's true, but there's no condemnation for me. That's what the scripture says. 
And so now I'm going to get up and I'm going to try again. I'm going to go at this again. The Spirit of God lives in me. Change is possible. You can do it. You can persevere to the end by the power of God's Holy Spirit. So this is really the message of, of Christmas, friends, <clears throat> that there is something you can't do. You can't save yourself. That there is something that God has done. He has sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for you. And now there is something that you can do, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you can obey and please God and be all that God wants you to be in this world. Uh, a good way to sum this up is uh, I'm just going to read to you <clears throat> some stanzas from a hymn written by William Cooper and John Newton. The hymn is called Love Constraining to Obedience. <clears throat> and it says this, How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but I toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now, if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done for a righteousness to raise. But now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's what the gospel does for us, friends. We're not slaves anymore. It's not mere duty to obey God. We have been freed from the law of sin and of death. There is no condemnation for you who trust in Jesus. So go, submit to Jesus, obey him, follow him wherever he leads until the day that he comes again for his people. Let's pray.